If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Julia, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 150 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Duoskin. Great to have you back for another amazing milestone, 150 episodes. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. Who knew when this was just a podcast dream that one day we would be celebrating 150 episodes together? I remember having Burt Ward, Robin from Batman, on my 50th episode. It was such a huge, big deal. Still is. But that was 100 episodes ago. Can't believe it. So much goodness. So much goodness. Thanks to every one of you for all this. All your support and love. It means the world to me. Today's guest, Gary Kroger. That's right. From Saturday Night Alive, 1982 to 85, Gary rocked 30 Rockefeller Plaza. That's right. Gary and I talk all about Saturday Night Live, those early 80s years. Those were the years coming off, the Belushi Aykroyd years, the five years with Lauren Michaels. After he left, things changed. We dive deep into it. You're going to love it. No stone unturned. We also go deep into another movie, Archie, Riverdale, and back. Who can forget? Gary Kroger was the original Reggie Mantle from Archie. So hang on to your seats. We got a lot coming up in just a few seconds. In these few seconds, I want to remind you, check out last week's episodes. Episode 149 with comedian Kathy Ladman. Amazing conversation. Episode 148, Christian Guineer. From Stranger Things, if you love Stranger Things, check out my conversation with Christian. If you love comedy, check out my conversation with Kathy. If you love Saturday Night Live, well, you're at the right place because we're about to talk to Gary Kroger. Gary shines light on being discovered for Saturday Night Live with Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Brad Hall working on Saturday Night Live during the heyday of Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo. Working with Billy Crystal, Martin Short, Christopher Guest, so much packed into this. We got great Ringo Starr, Robert Blake stories. You're going to walk away thinking, wow, I would have paid triple for this episode and gotten my money's worth. Well, lucky for you, it's completely free. And here it is, my conversation with Gary Kroger. Enjoy. All right, everyone. I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest, actor, writer, improviser, podcaster, Hailing from the Practical Theater Company. Loved him on Saturday Night Live. Archie to Riverdale and back again. The big picture. <laughs> the big picture. The newlywed game revival. America's number one clock watcher, Gary Kroger. Gary, welcome to the show. <laughs> Hey, Jeff. Uh, those are some credits I don't very often hear. Now, I loved Archie and Riverdale and back, and we can talk about that if you want. Uh, it never went anywhere, but I loved it. But no one's ever mentioned it before. <laughs> it's the first time I, there's a fan of Archie to Riverdale. Okay, let's start there. Since we have naturally gone in that direction. <laughs> I love 
that movie. And it was funny, you know, when you do research, you know, and digging in and you're like, oh my God, that's right. Gary was Reggie, right? I was Reggie. And I was like, but you know what? It doesn't get enough credit because that was the first live action Archie. Yeah, it was. Well, it was an interesting project. And I'll tell you a little story behind it. I have trouble putting dates on anything, but probably we're talking 1990 or somewhere in there. And I was just asked to come in to read for a show called Seinfeld, which was on the air. And it was friends of mine, of course, Julia and Larry David from Saturday Night Live. It wasn't an offer of the part. It was just to come in and meet on a role. Couldn't even tell you what the role was. But the show was at the bottom of the ratings at the time. And that wasn't the reason for me not going in to read. It was I had just accepted Archie to Riverdale and back, which was five days of work for an ungodly amount of money for five days of work. And it was a back end pilot. So I could see this becoming sort of a comic 30 something. Right. That was the idea was Archie meets 30 something. And I thought, okay, this has got legs. So I had already committed to it and it would have conflicted. And I didn't want to tell Larry or even Julia, hey, I accepted your job, but now I have to turn you down. It would have been bad for him, right? So I did Archie to Riverdale back, which obviously went nowhere. But I heard later that they were really hurt and that Larry David was kind of pissed off. And once you piss off Larry, he's pissed off for possibly a decade. And so I never got brought back in on Seinfeld. He did bring me in on a Curb Your Enthusiasm in 2003 or so, which I loved. But all that time, I assumed Larry David hated me for turning down a Seinfeld, a Seinfeld audition, and doing Archie to Riverdale and back. Well, in hindsight... In hindsight, you know, isn't hindsight something in hindsight? But, you know, I would have been a footnote, some character. I don't know who. I think there was a relationship with with Elaine somewhere in there. And yeah, the residuals would be a lot better (laughs) and I would be in that world. But you never know at the time. You know, I, I thought bigger part has legs, good paycheck. You know, I think I made the intelligent decision, just not the, um, you know, I didn't have a crystal ball, did I? No, look, I, I'm going to admit a few things. One, when I saw it on IMDb and I was reminded of this gem, which I completely remembered stuck in my head from uh, young Jeff Dwoskin watching TV, specifically, if I may be 100% honest, the Lauren, Holly, Betty seduction scene yeah. Archie. Right. So, yeah, it's Karen Copens and Lauren, two beautiful, beautiful women who are just starting their careers, really. And yeah, it was fun to go into the makeup, the honey, the makeup wagon and see the two of them uh, every morning. Beautiful, lovely cast. Chris Rich, lovely cast. It was a, it was a fun cast. And I tell you, I rewatched it. I found it on YouTube, rewatched it because I'm like, I got it. I got it. I got, you know, sometimes you want to replay those memories, right? It was good. It could have gone somewhere. I don't know why it was good enough. It was like, it was very well done for like an Archie kind of bringing well, it to life. You know, I, it was enjoyable. I, you know, if, if I may be somewhat modest, I'm a, I'm a very nice guy. I'm an easy guy to get to know and affable. So for me to play kind of an a-hole, you know, Reggie was, was a fun departure for me. And I felt that I did him quite well. I thought I played him, did him justice. The courtroom scene, I thought was pretty funny stuff. You were a great Reggie. You were a big jerk to pop Tate and you wanted to take down his soda shop. I sure did. Didn't I look at Gary Uh, Kroger and you're like, damn, I, I, I had that cutout of Reggie who was me, you know, like this at all of his, um, workout facilities for years and years and years. I carried that cutout with me. I really enjoyed it. I think what happened at that time, the early nineties, that was a cartoony thing. Good idea, but things were getting much more serious. 
They wanted 30 something. They wanted real drama, not Reggie and Archie having drama. So it just, you know, didn't go anywhere. I have a lot of those. Uh, the Shaggy Dog, The Return of the Shaggy Dog was, I thought, a very charming Disney movie that I did around the same time or a little bit earlier. And it had legs to go places, could have been a series. But, you know, it was just another movie of the week that went nowhere. That was in 1987. That was after after Saturday Night Live. That was indeed. Yeah, yes. A yeah. couple of years. Yeah. What eventually kind of determines whether one of these backdoor pilots will actually get made? Is it rating? Well, because- if it if it gets tremendous ratings, obviously, that's a big deal. Everything sort of is a back-end pilot because you want to keep those actors in case you get the idea that, hey, this could go somewhere. You want to already be have them contracted. Great ratings would have made a difference. I think it probably did well. I don't recall. And great reviews make a difference. And I think that those kinds of shows were basically treated not as heavy substance. There wasn't a lot of gravitas to it. So it was really easy to dismiss it, you know, in the reviews. And if the numbers didn't go through the roof, you know, it just went into the heap of nice ideas and that go nowhere. The current Riverdale, right, which is what everyone yeah. probably thinks, did have one of their episodes named to Riverdale and back again in homage to your movie. Do you think it was really uh, out of respect to, for my movie that yep, they yep, figured because enough they people remember movies. it? They pick movies, I think, to name their episodes. <laughs> and so that was, it was well, absolutely, absolutely. And then, so and then the, the director have... of your movie was Dick Dower. He did Smoking the Bandit yeah. 3, yeah. Gambler 3 and 4. Project L. Well, and Paul Haggis was, no, Paul Haggis wrote, did he write Archie to Riverdale and back? Paul Haggis? The Paul Haggis? Or or he wrote one of the films I did. It might have been The Return of the Shaggy Dog. John L. Goldwater. No, that was his character. Evan Katz. Evan Katz. He went on to many things as well. I remember Paul Haggis after Return of the Shaggy Dog. And this is this is what I would live for, is he would, he came up to me and said, Kroger, you you hit every beat. That to me is a fulfillment of my contract, what I'm supposed to do. He said, you never missed your mark. I mean, whether it was a, a line or just being prepared as an actor. And I, I took that, uh, obviously, 35 years later, and I still remember him saying that. It meant something to me. That's awesome. It's, a, it's those little words that people say to people. Yeah. Well, I did the best that I could. And so the writer producer said, you hit every note. That's what he said. And I, okay. Great. And you remember it. You're the first live. The first living Reggie. You're the first living Reggie. So you got that. That is always, that's trivia that you can die with right there. Well, you know what? I just might put that on Facebook today. (laughs) That might become my status today. (laughs) You should. Uh, all right, let's go. Let's uh, let's talk about. I think. Oh, I'm looking at your, my notes, and apparently there's other stuff we can talk. Oh yeah, there's other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I will say your years in Saturday Night Live. Those were like my first years of watching Saturday Night Live. You know what I mean? It's, you were target audience, so you were 14 or younger. Yeah, like right? 12 to 15 during yeah. your years, and so that was sort of like how I got introduced to Saturday Night Live was you and Julia and Eddie and Joe Piscopo and all that. And so it is a thrill. It's a real thrill to talk to you because it was your, it was such a cemented a, thing in, in my head. Well, I appreciate that. And I, I should take the compliment and say thank you, but it can't be a thrill. I mean, you don't have goosebumps or anything. It's a mild thrill, right? <laughs> it's it's, it's a, a pleasing sensation. Well, you know, I you know, I do this podcast because like I, I love to like talk to people that at some point in my life, pop in a pop culture way, kind of were there and, and embedded in my head. So yeah, it is it is it is awesome to be able to talk to you. Yeah. Don't well, you're very kind. Yeah. I appreciate that. I, I appreciate it. I mean, I wish I had Julia, but you are <laughs> 
<laughs> Look, believe me, I get it. I'd rather have Julia or, or Eddie, you know, absolutely. But only I, I, you I, return my calls. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the way I've always looked at that, my period there is I was a footnote in history. I had if the show were Led Zeppelin, I was a roadie. You know what I mean? It's like I'm not in the band exactly, but I was there. I witnessed Eddie Murphy's explosion onto the scene from really humble Saturday Night Live presence to a superstar in films. I got to watch that happen. You know, I watched Billy Crystal and Marty Short and Chris Guest improvise. You know, I got to, uh, I had a a bird's eye view of some amazing parts of uh, television history. I just want to take a quick break. Thank everyone for the support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here. Classic conversations. And that's how we keep the lights on. Now back to Gary Kroger. I'm about to take him back in time. And Gary's going to share some memories of being part of the practical theater. You know, I also found it amazing. Now, let's go Let's go back in time and then work back up to Sunday Night Live, like the time in the, the Practical Theater Company. And what was it even before that that even got you? What well, they got maybe in my life or the Practical Theater in particular? No, like what, in what even got you interested in doing comedy and improv and meeting Brad and Julia and forming this troupe? Well, it, it, you know, it's interesting. It's a great question, too, because I think people who are interested in these things benefit from hearing somebody that carved out some kind of a life in it. I've wanted to be a performer as long as I could remember, you know, and it, this sounds cute, but the fact is I would make the Avon lady laugh and that became a drug, you know, what you can make your family laugh. I was the funny person in a very intellectual academic family. I'm not an intellectual or academic, but the rest of my family is. And I was the funny guy. So once you find that niche in life, you become the funny, the wisecracker at school. You imitate all the teachers. You get involved in all the plays. So that was sort of my destiny as long as I could remember. But I really wasn't interested in comedy, even though I was getting laughs. It just told me that I wanted to perform. And when I got involved with theater, especially in high school and then in college, it was dramatic theater that that interested me. It was Arthur Miller. It was Tennessee Williams. It was Chekhov. These are the things that I felt could move people. And I felt that I had a, a deep reservoir to draw from. But you go where the opportunity is. I fell in with friends like Brad Hall and Julia Louis-Dreyfus and a host of other names. But those in particular, you probably know. And we were creating theater on the fly at Northwestern. We did Brecht. We did original shows. But the glue that kept the practical theater together and drew the biggest audiences were improv comedy shows. We approached all of it with kind of an intellectual point of view. We didn't want to just do silly comedy. We wanted it to be political. We wanted to make social statements. So we developed this reputation as being guerrilla, quasi-intellectual, collegiate comedians. Well, that led to a big show in Chicago, which led to Saturday Night Live. And then once you're painted with that brushstroke, comedian, Saturday Night Live, it's like, it's like Al Pacino. Once you think you're out, they pull you back in. You just can't get away from it. You know, I would go to auditions. Oh, it's the comedian. I'm not really a comedian. I don't do jokes. You know, I've I, I fought that the majority of my career. So do you just consider yourself a humorous observer of nature? I, yeah, I'm an actor and I'm a reasonably funny guy. 
You know, I think I'm a, a good conversation. I'm quick with a, a, a with witty repartee, perhaps. But I've always thought of myself as an actor and I try harder and harder to get back into it. But it's uh, it's difficult. How did you find a kind of a kinship with Brad Hall, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Paul Barros? Barras. Barras. Yeah. Rush Pearson, Paul Barras, Rush Pearson, Jeff Lupin and Bill Ronsky, Jane Muller. I mean, just a host of fantastic people. It's hard. Did I meet them at a frat party? Maybe at a, at a dormitory party, perhaps. Northwestern theater is very intense and it's a very reputable organization, right? Northwestern theater. It's almost conservatory like training. So people who are really anxious to do things have a tendency to do them on their own rather than wait for university theater to catch up with them. You audition for a show, maybe you didn't get in, but you still want to perform. So we sort of found ourselves looking at each other going, let's do stuff. Let's do stuff. We have all these ideas. Let's do stuff. Paul and Brad initially created the attack theater, which became the practical theater. And it just sort of drew people like me and Julia into it. And we became, you know, real collaborators and real friends. It was a window of probably 79 to 82, three years. But in that time, we produced a lot of material. The dam eventually burst. And that's when Saturday Night Live came by in 1982 and said, hey, would you come to New York? (laughs) Okay. You know, at that time, that was a good decision. I made a good decision on the spot. I said, yeah, I'll go to New York and let you pay me. How did they become aware of you? Um, Two things, I think. We were right next door to Second City. In fact, Second City sold our audience their drinks to make money off of us. They gave us the space to build. And we put on our own show next to Second City. I don't know that Second City at that particular... Bernie Sollins, who ran Second City, and Joy Sloan were tired of Senate Live raiding their cast. You know, Belushi, all of those people, Bill Murray, they all came from there. And then the show is kind of crippled, the theater show, because they all went off to Senate Live. So I think, as legend has it, Bernie said, "Uh, check out the kids next door. They got a they got a cute little show, a lot of energy. Go check out those kids. So Dick Ebersol, Bob Tischler and others came to see the show and literally closed us on a Saturday night, a Saturday after our Saturday show because they wanted us in New York on Monday or something crazy like that. So <laughs> I had Sunday to sit there and go, well, I guess I could. Am I going to move out, sell the Pinto and move out of my little one bedroom studio apartment in, in Chicago and move to New York? OK, yeah, I'll do that. It was like that. It really was magical. So part of the magic was Second City didn't want to lose any of their people. Yeah, yeah. Hey, God bless So them. they were happy to, to... Well, and we had a great chemistry. And Paul was brought along as a writer on the show, too, that first year. But we had a great chemistry, me and Julie and Brad and Paul. And that was the entire cast at that time. So I think it was easy to look at these very young people with these very physical ideas and say, okay, they will plug in nicely. Now, that's the good part of the story. The bad part of the story is we didn't really plug in that easily into Senate Live. Physical stuff was not what they did. They tell jokes. They create characters, catchphrases. It wasn't really the kind of stuff that we were doing. So we were very out of place, especially that first year. But the talent that they grabbed of the four of you, I didn't know Paul's name when I first wrote it down, but I looked him up and his his IMDb is so impressive. Remember, he created one of my favorite shows behind the music. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 But that's just like that just scratches the surface. So the four of you are insane talent. I mean, we all know now in hindsight what crazy talent they kind of grabbed. How did you feel, though? 
I'm sure you felt great because it was Saturday Night Live coming off what a lot of people consider like those iconic five years with like Belushi and Aykroyd, et cetera, et cetera, and Gilda. Well, we would be we would be two years after the iconic five years. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like so, yeah. you, season six, right? As the history goes, correct me if I, if I'm wrong. Season six, Lauren just wanted a break after season yeah. five. They're like, no, we're just plugging ahead. So they hire Gene Dominion, Dominion, right? And then she pulls together. Some folks, she gets fired mid-season. Dick Ebersol takes over. Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo start to become the stars of the show. I think they're the only two he retains. Right, he fires everybody. Then, yeah, and, including Gilbert Gottfried. Including Gilbert Gottfried, may he rest in peace. And then he brought together Tim Kazarinski and Robin Duke, Mary Gross. Lori Metcalf was featured. It was featured. I, I believe she was offered, but she just, it's not what she wanted to do. They retained Eddie and Joe. Eddie and Joe, particularly Eddie, became the stars of the show. Eddie, by 1982, the 81-82 season, according to Dick Ebersol, uh, I don't want to say he was getting lazy, but he was getting disinterested in Saturday Night Live because he started doing films. They hadn't come out yet, but he was getting film offers because he was the big star on, on SNL. One of the reasons that they went looking for new energy was to put a fire under Eddie. That's one of the reasons we were hired. And perhaps it did light a fire because when we got there, there was very little room for us in the Eddie Murphy, the Eddie Murphy show featuring Joe Piscopo. Right. The others, particularly Tim Kazarinski, so prolific, they found their space on the show. But for me, Brad and, and Julia, it was very tough going. You know, we considered ourselves the professor and Marianne before they got the song credit. We were and the rest. That's a Gilligan's Island reference. Heard, Maybe it predates sorry, you. No, no, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> I was singing it in my head. That's why. Yeah, and the rest. Well, that's what we were. You know, Brad and I would would say to each other, "Are you cop number one or cop number two? <laughs> you know, I mean, those are the roles that we got, with a few exceptions. Right. Your first season was season eight, right? So season se yeah. season seven when they rebuilt the cast and then they added Mary Gross. And Christine Ebersol. Christine Ebersol. No relation. Uh, Brian Doyle Murray was featured. Tony Rosato, Rosato yeah. was there. So now this is probably the year where Eddie and Joe really kind of established themselves. So then you kind of yeah. came into that. Yes. And they didn't know what to think of us because we were very theatrical. Nobody had heard of us. We were a fish out of water. We didn't know the medium. Our ideas, again, were very physical, very cerebral. And it just, they, they looked at us like, what on earth are they doing here? It, it took a while uh, to prove ourselves to them. I think we did eventually, but. How did you connect you know, it, with the rest of the cast? Like Robin Duke and Mary Gross and Tim? Well, Robin and Mary and Tim all came from Second City and they came from theatrical backgrounds. And so they sort of, em they embraced us. They understood that, hey, we're no different than you are. It was just like this for us last year. They were very, very kind, but they were also fighting for their own space on the show. Again, you know, uh, and <laughs> these aren't sour grapes. If I'm producing Saturday Night Live and I've got Eddie Murphy, I I'm going to give him everything I can. And Joe Piscopo takes some lumps, I think, these days. But, you know, he was a workhorse and he could do anything. If he worked on an impression, he would nail it after two or three days. And so he really was, in a way, the the um, Phil Hartman of our era. I agree with that. Uh, just a workhorse. And the two of them were such good friends and had such great chemistry that, you know, they put them together as Stevie Wonder and Frank Sinatra and Solomon and Pudge and all of these things that really were the meat and potatoes of the show. 
Yeah, Joe, I have the same kind of memories as Joe Piscopo being so solid. Eddie just being hilarious. Solid. And then I have like, it's funny. I don't know if it's just the memory and then reinforced by what clips I can find online, but it seems like you were every one of the clips you're in. Julia is in that clip. You guys were in a lot of clips together. I mean, that's not yeah. a bad thing. It was just an observation. I well, well, Julia and I were very, very tight. I mean, she was already with Brad Hall, and they would be married a couple of years later. But I think I knew Julia before Brad. We were a very tight group, and and Julia and I just fit together. We looked, we looked like we could be a couple. We were the right size for each other. You know, Brad's eight foot six inches. You know, and Julia is you know, five, two, Julia and I matched up very well as Donnie and Marie or whatever it was. So yeah, we were put together quite often. That's a skit that everyone always mentions as like one of the classics was, is you yeah, and, and it's Julia's Donnie Marie. I could not find it online to save my life. We did it three times. Same joke, <laughs> same joke, uh, incest, brother, sister, sing together, get closer, make out next week. They sing together. She's pregnant. I mean, it's just <laughs> low humor, low, low humor. It didn't even build with jokes. It was just the one <laughs> joke. But people remember it. It's just so funny. Who am I? Hey, Who am I to you argue? You can't question. You can't question it. Uh, <laughs> so during these the, these seasons, Harry Anderson, frequent guest. Yeah. Yeah. Harry was, you know, they're, uh, Joel Hodgson, Harry Anderson, nicest guys, uh, Stephen Wright. Just unassuming, nice, nice people. I got to do Night Court years later with Harry, and we swapped stories about the SNL days. He was authentic and as kind as he appeared to be. He really was. I loved Harry when on Saturday Night Live, and every time he showed up on Cheers. Well, I showed up on I mean, Cheers. I love Night Court, too. Course, I mean, pre-Night Court. Led, I mean, led to Night yeah, Court, yeah. but yeah. But that persona really was Harry. Just unassuming, brilliant with his sleight of hand. Yeah, so approachable. Loved the man. I'm looking at uh, first season. So I, <laughs> there's a few things of note during the first season I found is that Drew Barrymore hosted, youngest person ever yes. to host it. It's seven. Seven years old. And then I didn't realize this, the timing of it, but it was this season, your first season, that they voted Andy Kaufman off of Saturday yeah. Night Live forever. Yeah. And that's something that comes up once in a while because I'm the one that announced it. And I didn't really know what the flavor, the tempo, the mood of it was. I'm in the cast. I'm on the show. And I thought it was all set up. I thought it was just a big hoax. So when I played it to the camera, I cringe now when I see it, because rather than there was no subtlety to me, I, I'm sort of announcery and things like that. And then I announced that he was voted off the show. I found out later that it was real and that he was genuinely hurt. Why did, they, never, why did they do that? I, it was They did a thing the year before of dumping a lobster into the hot water or not, and people live voted on it. You know, Larry the Lobster. Sure. And I think people voted to kill the lobster. It could have been Andy's idea to do something like that because, you know, performance art is his thing. Real time, things like that. Uh, but a very nice, nice, gentle, gentle man. But I think he assumed that he was popular and that people liked him on the show. I'm, and I'm just guessing, and we can't ask him now, but what I heard and what I saw of his face afterwards was a very defeated guy. So I've never, I've never been comfortable with that and my part in it. Sorry to interrupt this amazing conversation with Gary Kroger, but we have to take a quick break. And we're back with Gary Kroger. We're going to go a little bit more into this whole Andy Kaufman story. And we're back. 
didn't anyone, didn't Dick Ebersole know you didn't actually have to use the real vote? I mean, <laughs> years later, things like American Idol and Last Comic Standing would <laughs> also make it look remember. like things are being voted on. <laughs> I don't remember, and maybe my memory is making things up, but it seems to me there was a standard and practices thing that if you say this is real, there were monitors to make sure that it was real and recorded correctly. I remember some authentic mechanism for this to be real. And the votes came in in real time. Yeah. I just, you know, and I'm wearing a really stupid sweater. And that when I announced it, it's like, you know, I guess it's, it's the, it's the early eighties. I'm forgiven. At the time it was probably great. But yeah, you didn't, if you had known you were stumbling into an iconic moment. Stumbling into something that would be forever known as part of this legendary career. I think I would have played it differently and worn better clothes. (laughs) Uh, though I don't think watching Archie recently, you, you learned anything I, from the jackets you were wearing in that. But anyway, the big lapels, <laughs> right? That, yeah, yeah. This is also the season that Buckwheat was shot. Yeah. Oh my God. Now that was brilliant. I would hold the assassination of Buckwheat up with, and I love what Tenet Live in the last 25 years. Love it. Love it. Particularly the last 10. It's gotten very political, but now it is an edgy show again. It's a water cooler show. Adults watch it again. You know, we were targeted for like 14 year, 12 year olds like you. I felt that the assassination of Buckwheat was a brilliant satire on media that holds up to this day. Joe Piscopo doing Ted Koppel was absolutely brilliant. And the way they just kept showing the assassination over and over and over. It was really the beginning of oversaturation media and Senate Live took advantage of that and and did a very, very good job. I played roles later as like a buckwheat impersonator because the buckwheat after death phenomenon, which we compared to Elvis, of course. David Suskind came on the show and a bunch of us buckwheat impersonators argued with each other. So I got to be part of it in that respect. And I'm pretty proud of that. You know, you see things and they stick with you forever. I mean, there's still times when I'll be like, have you seen the videotape? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> have, have you seen the video day? Well, it, it was, and it, Joe did it perfectly. In fact, Joe's, war, you know, when you do imitations, you find a hook phrase. And if you ask me to do Alan Alda later, I have a hook phrase. Right before camera would roll, I would hear Joe going, I'm Ted Couple, I'm Ted Couple. <laughs> and yes, and I can't do Ted Gobble, but Joe would perfectly be in the meter of Ted Couple after doing I'm Ted Couple. Have you seen the videotape? Buckwheat has been fantastic. shot. <laughs> has been shot. Um, and, and we did some things in that era. Uh, Eddie's White Like Me, where he puts on white face. Brilliant. And finds out that white people on buses have parties and things like that. You know, that was part of my era. And it holds up, I think, with any satire. That's, again, one of the greatest, greatest skits. Let me ask you a question. These great skits of your time, and I'll throw the Needleman dating video into that pile is do you think because these are like the um the non-lauren years that sometimes in retrospectives or anything like that yes. they get skipped yes without a doubt without a doubt in fact i think loner would bury that those four or five years under the carpet but you can't ig- ignore eddie murphy eddie murphy to this day is probably the single biggest star to emerge and i'm talking about will ferrell too eddie's eddie's star has shown so brightly for so long that you can't ignore that he that that era is part of Saturday Night Live. And so begrudgingly, and I'm just guessing, but we don't get included in a lot of things except for Eddie. You'll notice Joe isn't particularly involved in the anniversary shows, particularly. 
Eddie's the one and Billy Crystal and Marty Short. You really can't ignore. That's too bad. It, but because uh, there was some yeah. really great stuff that came. I think it's hard to ignore any period because no matter what anyone thinks of any period, like I didn't, I hate to say this out loud. I had no opinion of the first five years because I really hadn't seen them. Okay. Right. I mean, when I was introduced to yours. So my opinion is these are to me what Saturday Night Live is. I went well, back and explored and learned and sure. you know, all that. But, you know, to ignore any part of the history of the show, I think is unfortunate. Well, I got to watch Eddie. I met Eddie Murphy and 48 Hours hadn't come out yet. I knew that he was the star of SNL, but he was just this kid who hung out at all the meetings. He would sign his name on lampshades. He was just introducing himself to the concept of celebrity. But he was just this really young kid. And I got to watch 48 Hours come out, Beverly Hills Cop, Trading Places, and he became a superstar to where a hush would fall over the studio. You know, you'd have 450 people in the audience and it would be like, oh, it could have been the Beatles, you know, the way people responded to him. And I got to witness that. Of the three years I was there, I would have to put the, I think the Billy Crystal, Marty Short, Chris Guest year, it stands out as a gem because everything, it was a, it was a different style. It was different writing. It was different kind of characterizations, but I was there. I was part of it. And I think you could put that year next to any in the history of Senate Live and say, okay, that, that competes. Yeah. That, that year, I, I hate when that happens. Or, yeah, oh, that, yeah. <laughs> then I took the pliers and I pulled back my fingers. And, and, it was exactly. like, I mean, and the skin, the, the bamboo under your fingernails. I hate when that happens. Yeah. That and the synchronized swimming. Synchronized swimming stands up with anything. You know, I, at the end of my second year, I did Ira Needleman. It made the best of shows a couple of times during that period. To this day, it's what people associate me with. And that was, Gary, here's $30,000. Uh, let's do something. And Andy Kurtzman, Elliot Wald came up with this idea that it's a video dating, which just started. It was putting in VHS tape still. And I'm a nerdy dentist. And Nate Herman, I think, wrote this kind of Springsteen-esque rock and roll song that I went and recorded. And I think it holds up, even though the technology has changed. I think the nerdy dentist that metamorphosizes into this rock and roll stud with a tooth and a cape, I think it's still pretty funny. Holds up. I watched it like two days ago. I was like, <laughs> I was like blessed that I could find it. It was so funny. I was like, I watched this and honestly, I wrote down, I go, this holds up with any of the best skits ever. Like it's, I, I think it's like, it's easy right in the top of any of them. It is so funny. It was so well done. And it's, it's cheap double entendres. Let me fill you up with my drill. I mean, all of these things, but to that audience of teenagers, this was edgy stuff, really well produced. It's a good video. Well, teenage and me loved it, and adult <laughs> me rewatching it on YouTube or SNL on NBC, whatever. Oh, we've had Broadway dancers in there as my hygienists, and they're fantastic. I mean, it was a really good production. It was just that's what they do now. They do these huge. Uh, you yeah, know, video right. segments, pre-tape segments, and they kind of blow it out. It was right in line with that. You were the forefather of everything that well, Lonely Island very later came to be. <laughs> Andy Samberg well, owes you a thank you now. <laughs> I make my kids watch some of that stuff. My, my oldest is almost 23. My era so predates his whole sensibility, frames of reference, sense of humor, that I don't think he really finds anything that I ever did particularly funny. <laughs> not at all. Or any of my children. No, it's, not at all. I, I, you, you'd like to think that they'd show their friends. I, I don't know that they do. I don't know if they do. 
it's hard. It's hard for the kids because they see you so differently, right? And so, well, I'm dad. Right. So to see dad in spandex with a cape, maybe that's upsetting. And in fact, I seem to recall I stripped down to sequined. Yeah, you're pretty shorts. much all the way down. I'm yeah. pretty naked in that thing. Yeah, that might be hard. I can't imagine seeing my father. And then they, that and way. they put yeah. uh, probably whipped cream, but toothpaste. Well, it was whipped cream, yeah. but it, of course it was supposed to be right, toothpaste. Right. Yes. So <laughs> and brushed it and brushed my chest. <laughs> so. So all of you at home who haven't seen it, I'm sure that's enough that you're going to want to download. You go to the NBC website, you can all you can get a lot of that stuff. I think Donnie and Marie's there. Ira Needleman. Yeah. Oh, it's all you just type in Gary Kroger at NBCS and whatever it is. And you'll get a few. Yeah, yeah. there's a good there's a good selection. Another really good one is the Superman one with Christopher Reeve auditions. That's a good one, too. I was very proud of that one because I didn't have any direction. I made it my own. The fall, taking the bullet and all that stuff. The pompous actor. Um, I'm not saying I made the sketch. Christopher Reeves in the sketch. He's Superman. But I thought that was really well played by everyone. And I got a nice big laugh from being murdered <laughs> by Richard Donner. <laughs> played by <laughs> so Jim Belushi. How was, what was it like for Jim Belushi? Because he joined your second year. He joined season nine. Yeah. This is like a year and a half after his brother passed away. Yeah. Well, Jim, Jim was, uh, Jim and I are in great, great terms. Now we don't hang out or anything, but I saw him at the SNL reunion it was very, very friendly. And he actually apologized to me several years ago because during SNL, he wasn't that nice to me and not because I was any kind of threat, but he perceived me as one. For some reason, he targeted me as the person who was going to take roles from him. So Robin Duke was on my show, the Gary and Kenny show. And she said, oh, yeah, Jim would close the door and talk about that, that he, he would say, oh, I can see through Kroger's nice act. He's he's is insincere and and he's a shark. And so he really had it out for me. But at the same time, we did a lot of things together. We did the bulge where he sees me stuff my pants to get girls in a bar. We did the shoplifting thing where I'm the storekeeper and he steals the entire store. We did a couple of red guys where we did a rap together as a couple of mm -hmm. Soviet defectors. So the funny thing is we had, we did, um, we are the world together. We had great chemistry. You know, some of my favorite stuff was with Jim. The term is probably projection, though I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, I can't even imagine. We don't, you know, what what it would the pressure on Jim Belushi to come into Saturday Night Live with the, with name, the name Belushi. Belushi. Yeah. And let's face it, it's only a year after his brother died. It seemed like oh, a big span of time. No, not at all. You know, uh, John died in eighty March of eighty two. We're there in September of eighty two. Jim's there the very next year. All of us made the mistake of like seeing Jim in the hallway and say, "Hey, John, Jim, I'm sorry." And I remember Jim turning to me once and said, you get two, meaning you can make this mistake twice, right. three times, and I probably belt you. But I, I understood. I understood. His brother's shadow was huge. And Jim is a very talented guy. And he wanted to carve his own niche. He knew that the name Belushi opened the door, but that's where he wanted the door to close and be his own man. So I got it. I understood. Yeah. No, Jim was Jim was very funny on his own, in his own way, I think. And so- oh, yeah. But yeah, I can. I a better actor in a way, I think, you know, than, than John. Uh, you know, John had a charisma that nobody has equaled. I can't think of anybody. Chris Farley, maybe. I don't know. But there was a danger to John, too. None of those things Jim had. But Jim's a very good actor. He played comedy very sincerely, yeah. very real. And I, I was impressed by him. No, I agree. I agree. Also, 
So you mentioned the season three cast that they brought on because they stacked the season three cast with Billy Crystal. Yeah. So they Eddie Murphy leaves, Joe Piscopo leaves, and they bring in Billy Crystal, Christopher Guest, Martin Short, Harry Shearer, and Pamela Stevenson. So basically, except for Michael McKeon, the entire cast of Spinal Tap. Of, of Spinal, Spinal Tap, right. right. I think Michael was asked, too, for that matter. I know he later, I know he hosted that season and later. Yeah. So interestingly, when he hosted that season, they sang McKeon, Shear, and Christopher Guest sang Old Joe's Place as the Folksman, which later... Yeah, the Folksman, right. Which later was yes, the exact right. song the in Folksman. The Mighty Wind. The Mighty Wind. Yeah. All of Chris's movies I've loved. I've got to do one. I was in The Big Picture, which really was one of his first films, if not his first film post SNL. And he gave me a nice day role that's memorable on The Big Picture. But I've enjoyed all of his films. I, I just think they're brilliant. Throw clamshells. See, I did my... There you go. I did my research. There you go. What? The- <laughs> and what, you're now uh, just, if you weren't, a degree from Kevin Bacon already, you're now literally, what would this make you? One degree? Two yeah, degrees? you're right there with I mean, Kevin I, Bacon. And that was... Right. I'm I'm on the couch with Kevin Bacon. So anybody that knows me, you're what? Two degrees from Kevin Bacon? Is it one degree? Are you one degree? I don't know. Wouldn't I be one degree? Because yeah. I'm not Kevin Bacon. You're with him. You're no degrees. You're like sitting on the couch. So I'm no degrees? Okay, so you're one degree. I think I'm, I've never really figured that part out. But, you know, Chris wrote a brilliant sketch or script, but he doesn't really tell you how to do it or what to do or how to play it. He lets you find the rhythm in there so we literally he has three cameras going jt walsh is over here kevin bacon i'm here and just roll did it a couple of times let me find my own beats and rhythms threw in a few things of my own cut print michael mccann is credited as the screenplay writer christopher guest and michael varhol as yeah and michael michael varhol yeah uh, what I, <laughs> and then christopher guest directed it so yeah i love all the christopher guest stuff it's fun and so that was a, that was a connection then that kind of grew from the time at Saturday Night Live. So that's nice. Yes. So let me ask you this: this um, my question is: so you have this amazing cast brought in in season ten. You came in with the bookend of Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo. Yeah. Do you kind of feel? And then you were gone after that that season. After season ten, that was your last season. Do you feel you ever had a chance, like, I mean, like to like grow, like, because at the end of season, they always were bringing in these giant hitters. So the feeling that you yeah. had in season eight, where you were kind of brought in to help support and spark Eddie, they brought in all these, they brought in their own top people again, instead of letting yeah. you guys grow. Uh, yeah. And that's how I more or less look at it. Looking back at the end of the second year, the last thing I did was Needleman. I had, I had good momentum. I finally knew what I was doing. I knew how to write for television. I had confidence as a performer, but then Dick switched up the cast. Some people left. He started new. I didn't expect to be asked back. And I don't think Julia did or Mary, but they wanted to have some good, solid experience performing probably secondary cast to support Billy and, and Marty and Chris. So there was room for us there, but then they're the heavy hitters and they took the lion's share of stuff. I felt like, you know, th- there would be times where Chris Guest would come up to me and say, Kroger, can you do Robert Mitchum? And I said, give me five minutes, Chris. And I'd come back and go, you know, this is my buddy's you know, well, just kind of do whatever, right? Better than that. But at the time, I worked up Robert Mitchum. So they saw me as someone of their crowd that they could rely on. They said, do you do Alan Alda? We're going to do Alan Alda for a talk show. So I went into a room and I found my hook phrase. 
Uh, what, what was it? The blood on Klinger's apron is clashing with his paisley dress. Well, I thought the, those are real landmines out there. You know, I just found my sort of hook phrases in, in that Alan Olda face. And so they said, Kroger, great, come on. And they kept including me. It was never to feature me. Okay. But I was part of the group. And I felt like if we had gone another year, I really would have become, because they would have wanted to do less and I would have gotten more. I felt like I had just gotten started, but Marty and Chris uh, just wanted to do the show one year, Billy as well. So they all left and Dick Ebersol wasn't interested in doing the show anymore. So the show was really over after 1985. And Lauren came back and started over and he wasn't going to include me. That's too bad. Right. I read that they, right. They canceled it. They were going to go. Yeah. It was going to be Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Wrestling or something. Unless they could get uh, Lauren Michaels back. Lauren back. And it was, and it was part of that. I read that Dick Ebersol wanted to move way more into pre-videotaped sketches and away from live. And they're like, no. It controls the budget. It controls the comedy. It controls the timing. They're so well done, still are, maybe probably better than ever. But that film group was so tight. They were so good that I could understand wanting to do that. Who was uh, the guest star that you were the most excited about? Well, well, that would be Ringo, bar none. Was it the best show? No, absolutely not. But I'm a huge Beatle fan. I mean, I'm a Beatle fan since I was six years old. Beyond idolatry, it's... (laughs) It's it's ridiculous. My connect. I have a left-handed Hofner bass guitar behind me right now. So hanging out with Ringo for a week, uh, that is unequaled in my life. Telling me stories about backstage at Ed Sullivan, the screaming girls teaching his son to play drums, who now plays, of course, with the Who. I mean, it's just like it's crazy. Uh, the the actor that I had the most chemistry with and did really interesting things with was Howard Hessman. He did a couple of shows, and he and I, because he was an improv actor. And we did a couple of sketches together. We just learned our lines and then sort of improvised. You'll never, we never look at cue cards. And I found a brother, you know, a, a, a brother in arms with Howard Hessman. So I really adored him. He was in the committee. Yeah. The committee. I loved Chris Reeve because he was Superman. And I told Chris Reeve a story that uh, we went out to dinner and I told Chris a story that when I was a little boy, and this is true, I would wear my Superman suit under my clothes because I was kind of a wimpy kid. And I kept thinking, well, if somebody sees the S, they're going to go, holy crap, Kroger is Superman. Let's not mess around with it. I mean, you know, that's a kid's way of thinking, right? I had no problem with that line of thinking at all. <laughs> <laughs> no. So I wore a Superman suit to school, but I'd have my cape in it as well. And it would bunch up in my pants. And this girl, Julie Nielsen said, and I can remember it, it was second grade, Gary Kroger's wearing diapers. Well, I couldn't say, no, it's my cape. It's a cape. It's not a diaper. And I told Chris that story. And then later he's on a talk show and he stole the story. He told the story as if that's what he did as a boy. And I think he even told the diaper part of it. And the audience was like, oh, that's the sweetest story in the world. I'm thinking, he stole my, that's me. He stole my panel. He stole your story? That son of a gun. He stole my story. I would even think to do that. That, I mean, that is... Because having done a couple of panel shows myself, you're so desperate for a charming story that I'm sure Superman gets up there and say, well, that's, I just heard this great story. So I don't, you know, I I never blamed him. True or false. You have a coffee cup containing cigarette ashes used by Ringo Starr when he hosted Saturday Night Live. True. (laughs) Right here. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yep. Didn't expect it to show up that quickly, did you? I am not. Right behind me. That is amazing. That is uh, absolutely so great. So cool. Do you have any that you uh, did not enjoy? Um, <laughs> Robert Blake. <laughs> Robert Blake. I mean, uh, is that you now or in hindsight? Or was he always like in the murdering oh, kind of mood? <laughs> uh, well, I'll give you some Robert Blake. Look, this is in lots of center, like the worst hosts ever. And he always makes the top 10. And the story is told that Gary Kroger gave him a script of an idea. I think it was called, um, uh, he was a philosophy professor, but his cockatoo had all the knowledge. I don't remember the skit, <laughs> but he read it and he said, this is the this is the stuff you're giving me. And he wiped his butt with it and threw it at me, hit me in the head. And the room kind of went, oh, that was rude. I wasn't hurt. I just thought, well, I guess he didn't like the script. And I thought, well, I guess, you know, I'm a boy from Iowa. I guess this is how they do it in the big leagues. I really wasn't hurt. But the story keeps replicating. But he was never particularly charming anyway. Years later, I got to know him because he had a crush on a girl that I was dating in L.A. (laughs) And so I would see him around. So I'm at Vitello's, right? And he's there with his wife. And I'm having dinner and he waves at me and I wave at him and they leave and he comes back because he forgot his gun. That was the night that his wife was murdered. So when I walked home, I walked, I I didn't see anything, but I walked by the car where apparently she was dead inside. Wow. So, yeah. So, I mean, I'm not a witness to anything except to corroborate. Yeah. He came back for his gun. <laughs> Just Hang on. There's weird. a knock on my door right now. Hang on. So <laughs> you want to copy the tape? <laughs> But, but I got to witness, uh, you know, this is a, this is part of Hollywood lore, the did he or did he not murder his wife? And I witnessed, I was, saw her 10 minutes before she was dead that I didn't find out till the next day. And it's the news is breaking and wait, that's the garbage. That's the car. I just walked by there, you know? Yeah. Very strange. You know, I, Robert Blake looms large in my life. I, you know, I thought that story sounded familiar, and I was because I was just listening to an interview with Christopher Reeve, and he told the same exact story. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know what to believe. I don't even know what to believe anymore. Ringo's ashes. <laughs> I mean, come on. But you got to kind of rub elbows with some, uh, John Candy, hosted the Smothers oh, yeah. Brothers, Don Rickles. One of the nicest human beings to ever live. The Smothers Brothers, hugely generous, nice people. Most of the experiences were great. Jerry Lewis was a huge star, and Eddie and Joe do great Jerry Lewis, and they were a threesome, and they had a lot of fun. I did not find him to be a particularly warm guy. Sid Caesar, I adored because he really created the concept of Senate Live with your show of shows. He was not a warm and friendly guy. But for the most part, you're dealing with actors who are out of their element, and they rely on you. They look to you as a, as a lifesaver, and you develop really nice relationships. That's very cool. Do you regret being pulled into the non-Lauren years? Do you wish like, oh, I was discovered a couple of years later? Or do you ever think about that? I don't think I would have got, uh, well, you know, I have dreams that I'm asked back to the show <laughs> because it, it, it's a classic case. I wish I knew then what I know now because I would know how to write for it. I, I would be the most prolific guy there. I just, I'm certain of it. It's not going to happen. I don't think that the circumstances, the way Lorne casts would have happened for me. I mean, I don't know that I would have, you know, he casts people doing their stand up, which I never had. The audition process is a lot different from what I did. I was caught in action doing theater. I did send them a tape for a request, though, 
long, well, that's a piece of the story that I've never figured out. Weeks before they showed up, my agent called and said, Kroger, Senator, I want you to send them a tape. Somebody said that Kroger is this guy they need to see. So I went on tape and I'm doing Ed Sullivan, Beatles impressions and and Red Skelton, Barney Fife, all of these things. But I never heard Haydn or hair of that. But the audition process is much different than what I think I would have excelled at. So I was caught in my element by Dick and Bob Tischler. If that had been Lorne, I don't know that he would have, I don't know that he would have hired Julia for that matter. And there is no more talented human being on the planet. It's interesting that Julia, as talented as she is, I don't think you can credit Saturday Night Live for... No, no. Saturday Night Live for Julia was the relationship with Larry David. And, and I was good friends with Larry too. It's really sort of the three or four of us because Larry was very unhappy there. And when Larry put his show together, Seinfeld, and they're looking for the girlfriend, he thought, Julia, my great friend from SNL. And the rest is history. That, that is when he was on, I, I read during one of the three years that you were there, there was a footnote said, the only time yeah. Larry David got a skit on Saturday, on Saturday Night Live. I had read, and I wanted to ask you about this. I think it was in this book, Live from New York. Yes. So that Larry came up with a lot of the ideas that eventually became Seinfeld episodes. Oh, yes. But nothing that he would pitch ever saw the light of day. One thing. I think he, he got one on the show, but it was cut after dress rehearsal. He quit the show in the midst of it, but came back on Monday because he realized, wait a second, I'm making thousands of dollars every week. I'm just going to slip back into the, the writer's meeting and nothing was ever said. I think that was a Seinfeld but, episode. <laughs> Yes. And here's a Seinfeld episode too. And nope, you can believe me or not. I believe you. The rap party, the end of that season, the third season when Larry was there at top of the rainbow room, top of, you know, the, uh, of Rockefeller center, Larry comes up to me and says, I'm going to kill Dick Ebersol tonight. And he shows me a vial of liquid. And I, he might've said it was cyanide or something. I'm going to put this in his gin and tonic. I go, no, you're not. Yeah. And Dick was over there at the bar and he's got his drink. And I'm thinking uh, this, he's just being Larry. He's just, you know, but then I see Larry circling him. I'm thinking, am I being set up as the biggest buffoon in the world? Is he going to kill him? And now I'm an accomplice. I left the party and had a restless night. Obviously Dick didn't die. It didn't happen. Years later, it's woven into a Seinfeld where George tries to kill his boss. Right. And I realized I was front row center again at something. It was me, whether Larry remembers it or not, that he confided in, I'm going to kill Dick tonight with this vial of liquid. Yeah, Gary, you've been a little too close to a couple of murders for me. I'm going to slowly back away. You know, it is a little <laughs> creepy if you think about it. And poor Chris Reeve has died. I'm just bad news. <laughs> Stay Howard Hessman, um, <laughs> Jerry Lewis. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, let's uh, let's let's pivot real fast. As El Dorco, you got to make out with Jamie Lee Curtis. So <laughs> yes, I did. You got that going. El Dorco was, you know, a character for, of mine from high school, and I thought a very a, a very broad character, but a very realistic character of of someone who's just abused by everyone is depanced and things like that but he always manages to get the girl and in the first one i start making out with julia mary gross is fighting for my attention and i'm just making out between all of them it went over really really well and so a couple of weeks later I said kroger can you come up with something with jamie lee curtis and I've got another little <laughs> tidbit of history. So I did it with Jamie Lee Curtis, made up this win a date with Jamie Lee Curtis. El Dorco wins and we make out and she invites me to her hotel room. Right. It, a cute sketch. 
Well, El Dorco wears glasses and she took my glasses off to kiss me. And I, you know, I, you can see I, I went like this, you know, because my glasses were off. She was so captivated by that acting choice of really looking like I couldn't see without my glasses. When you watch True Lies and her glasses come off, she does that. She goes cross-eyed. She pulls a Kroger. And she, she pulled a Kroger because she came up to me and she said, I love when you did that. That was an amazing choice. And I saw her do it on the big screen. When I write my book that no one buys, even my children, these things are these stories are going to be in it. Those are, Whether anyone believes me or not. I believe you. I believe you. These are great stories. I can't thank I I don't know. Yeah, that's yeah, I don't know that I've ever told anyone that. Maybe my wife just to try to impress her when we were dating. <laughs> yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis copied one of my little acting techniques. That's awesome. And Christopher Reeves stole your story. Stole my story. Yeah. I have Ringo's ashes, which I have to clarify cigarette ashes. Cigarette ashes, right? Ringo is still alive. <laughs> I mean, it is still alive. He's still with us. I haven't killed him yet. <laughs> yet. <laughs> Gary's run, Ringo, yeah. run. <laughs> and I and I dined next to Robert Blake before he murdered his wife. So there you go. There you go. Oh, but stop the presses. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for hanging out with me. These were this was so oh, this was fun. This was fun. Wait, is there places on the social media people can keep up with you? Well, I do a podcast, uh, The Gary and Kenny Show. Kenny Seisler is a director, uh, did a lot of Disney shows, did Comic Strip Live with me, a lot of specials, was one of the pioneers of MTV. But we're both a couple of middle-aged guys now, and we just call up people that we knew in the business, you know, Brad Hall and Andy Breckman and whomever, friends of his, Mark Gordon, Chris Mel Dondry, and we talk about the business, you know, try to keep it light and keep it funny, but really find out from people what they're doing called the Gary and Kenny show, which is on YouTube and podcast platforms. Otherwise I have a blog, Gary has issues, which is political. I write a column for the, I write the left point of view for various newspapers, you know, monthly. So, you know, and I, I'm, I'm open on Facebook. In other words, I don't have any restrictions, anybody, you know, psychopaths, anybody can, can read my stuff and, and uh, socialize with me on Facebook. Oh, the other note I had was you ran for the Iowa U.S. House of Representatives. I, then- I ran for Congress first, and then right. I ran for the Iowa House of Representatives. I lost, but I was very proud of my campaign. I was very proud of what I was able to do. I got a few votes, but just not enough in a very conservative area. I think I made it clear that I'm relatively progressive. And I lost, but I don't regret it. Would I do it again? I heard your brain asking. No, it just costs too much money. Expensive. And it's no, because if I were running right now, Jeff, I would say, hey, I really enjoyed talking to you. Do you have $500 that you could contribute to my campaign? I mean, you can't, you can't say hi without soliciting money because it costs that much. You know who, you know who else from Iowa was a political figure from uh, Fred Grandy, Gopher. From- well, Fred Grandy, yeah. yes. in Sioux City, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Gopher. Gopher. Yeah. I'm Gopher Light. I had Gopher on my podcast. It was funny because- Did you have Gopher? I like Fred. Now, he's very conservative, but- We didn't get into politics per se, but as a joke, I read him some uh, bills that he was a sponsor on. And then I read one that I completely made up. And he's like, "Mm -hmm." I'm like, Fred, I made that up. (laughs) (laughs) I wish you could have done that with me. I probably probably would have. Yeah, well, Jeff, I made that bill up because I feel that uh, (laughs) hamsters really aren't getting the protection that, that, that they deserve. You know? Exactly. Wheels have to stay oiled. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, I can't thank you enough. Hashtag my Reggie. This has been Gary Kroger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to dig up that stuff. I'm going to watch Reggie on YouTube tonight. You got to. It's all there. It's all there. And, it, yeah, it's and its beauty 
clearly taped on a VHS and uploaded to YouTube. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. Mm -hmm. Yep. I think that the part of it to like look at and think what could have been was the potential future episode. Because I think Archie would have ended up with Betty. That's my opinion. But I think you would have ended up with Veronica. Well, nice thought. Yeah. I sure wanted to at the time. So I think that's where it would have Way gone. Back they then. couldn't use it all up in the pilot. So anyway. No. <laughs> Thanks for asking me on. I really appreciate it. It was such a pleasure. It was an honor. Thank you. Peace out. Peace out. All right. Gary Kroger. How awesome was he, right? I mean, tell me the Ira Needleman DDS part of the conversation didn't give you a toothache and wanted you to get a cleaning right now. I know. Got me going too. Anyway, awesome stories. Loved every second of it. And we got an Alan Alda impression. So what more could you ask for? I know, right? All right, but definitely head over to YouTube and uh, find uh, the Archie show, Riverdale and back. You'll love it. So fun. All right. Well, with the interview over, that can only mean one thing. That's right. It's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at Hashtag Roundup. Download the free Hashtag Roundup app. Free. Never costs a penny. At the Google Play Store or iTunes App Store, tweet along with us at hashtag Roundup. And one day, one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Classic Conversations. Fame and fortune await you. The hashtag for this episode is hashtag SNL Bands. That's right. The ultimate Saturday Night Live band mashup brought to you by Musical Hashtags, a weekly game on hashtag roundup obviously hashtag snl bands inspired by our guest gary kroger who was on saturday night live there you go all right let's get to it without further ado here are some hashtag snl bands church lady gaga the talking coneheads the bare naked church ladies these are some amazing hashtag snl bands smashing david s pumpkins Ace of Bass and Gary, The Rolling Cones, Buckwheat Cherry, The Killer Bee Gees, Jimmy Fallon Eat World. Tweet your own hashtag SNL bands. Tweet, tag us at Jeff DeWaskin Show on Twitter. I'll show you some Twitter love. Hootie and the Land Sharks, Guns and Rosanna, Rosanna, Diana, Laser Cat Stevens, Eddie Murphy and the Cruisers, Mr. Mr. Bill. Steely Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi and the Banshees, and our final hashtag SNL Bands tweet, Bruce Springsteen and the in-house SNL band. Alrighty. That was a mighty fine batch of hashtag SNL Bands tweets. They'll all be retweeted at Jeff Jawaskin's show. Go show them some love. Well, with the interview over and the hashtag over, it can only mean one thing. 150 episodes have come to a close. I want to thank Gary Kroger for being my guest on the 150th. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week, 150 times each. If you're counting, it means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word, and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.